Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, I just want to say the last podcast, uh, somehow in, in recording and uploading and something, it did have some time gaps in it. Um, I hope those weren't too distracting. You really didn't miss anything. Uh, I only... The recording was fine. You know, it's one of those technical things. Well, it was fine on this end <laughs> until I uploaded it, and then it seemed to develop problems. So rather than try to re-record the whole thing, I, I just let it go, and I figured, well, I'll just tell people, and, and uh, they'll be able to deal with it. But anyway, uh, so there's not... Uh, there's not Joe Biden minutes in there where we've completely lost and forgot our train of thought and, and can't articulate. It's simply just some technical glitches that we're working through at this point. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them in the comment section on Podbean or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. And I will do my best to answer them in the next podcast. So, anyway, that's the uh, that's the stuff right there. And I just wanted to say, um, you know, I'm doing less and less politics. The reason I'm doing less politics is, I mean, it's just it's just blatantly obvious to everyone how how things have gone. Uh, we have just a a debilitated crazy old man in the White House, and we have the giggler, a giggling fool as vice president. And, you know, I, I I just can't keep articulating this stuff. The economy, inflation, labor shortages, pouring stimulus money on, on an economy and causing inflation... Um, the southern border is a mess. Afghanistan, our foreign policy is a mess. Afghanistan being a prime example. Um, you know, there is no confidence in our government. You look at that old geezer and, and he does nothing. And as a matter of fact, the other day he just gave a speech, which, you know, was this meandering, babbling thing where he's contradicting himself and everything else. And, uh, Frankly, it's a disaster. He's a disaster. The country is in real trouble. And, uh, you know, the midterms will help, but they won't cure everything. I mean, the midterms, if it, they go as predicted, and I, I usually take those predictions with a grain of salt, but I can't believe the Democrats are headed for anything but a slaughter at this point. But, you know, anything can happen. Um... You know, at the beginning of 2020, I thought Trump was 75, 80% chance of getting reelected. And had there been a fair election, that would have, that would have been true. Um, you know, it just there's certain truths that, that people don't want to face. The first truth is Donald Trump is really the rightful president of the United States because of the horrible, horrible election all of the controversy surrounding it and it was clearly manipulated the other is that uh, everything they accuse the january 6th insurrectionists which were actually protesters of doing they themselves have done they're the ones who stole democracy january 6th they certified 
a fatally flawed election, which they knew robbed a candidate of his rightful victory. They certified that. That is stealing democracy. That is the danger to our nation. You know, they, they, they want to talk about that the rioters were that way. Well, they weren't. What do you think motivates normal people to go to the Congress of the United States and protest and break into the thing? I mean, it's, it's not that they were all crazy or looking for a reason or they would have done it before. They just would have done it at any other time. It's because everybody knew this election was garbage and everybody knew who and what Biden is, was and is. And effectively, you know, they, we had a president who was looking out for the country, getting us better trade dealers, telling the cheapskate NATO members to pay up, uh, securing the southern border, getting peace in the Middle East, diffusing the situation with North Korea, all these things. Great, absolutely great accomplishments. And that was squandered and thrown away. We were energy independent in November 2020. We're not now. And now they're shoving goofy electric cars down our throats. Electric cars that we have to burn coal. So they're actually coal-powered cars. They actually, and we don't have enough of our own energy to produce the electricity for all these goofy electric cars they want people to have. And we don't even have the electric infrastructure. There aren't enough charging stations. And even if they did, there's not enough electricity in the grid to keep millions of these cars going. That's the kind of lunacy that we're facing. Um, electricity isn't free. It just doesn't pop out of the air. The only way to get it is you burn oil, you burn coal, or you burn <laughs> or you nuclearize and get nuclear power. Um, windmills ain't going to cut it. Solar panels ain't going to cut it. It's, it has to be high-yield energy, and it has to be put into a grid that can distribute it. And, um, you know, that's, that's just one situation that's emblematic of, of some of the national craziness that goes on. But anyway, uh, other people do that a lot better than I do. But anyone who's got any sense can see that just the mental decline of Biden, even from November, October, November of 2020. I mean, it's 2022. This guy, this guy is silly. He's silly. He's a silly, crazy old man. And, uh, you know, it's actually kind of sad. And the Democratic Party are riddled with incompetence. Whoever would have thought that Joe Manchin, who's a jerk, Manchin's a jerk. He'll take your guns in a heartbeat, yet he's fooled the people of West Virginia. But he'll take your guns. Oh, you can probably keep your 30-30, maybe your 30-06. But he's going to take anything that's semi-automatic. He's that's the kind of guy he is who would have thought that joe manchin and Kristen cinema who's a kook came from the green party how used to have her hair dyed different colors she's like an lgbt person and all these other kind of things that you wouldn't think would line her up with joe manchin and actually protect a little bit of our governmental <laughs> you know a little bit of our governmental balance by protecting the filibuster who would have thought 
you never you never could have got you couldn't even have gotten odds in Vegas that those two would be the ones that would that would kind of save us and uh, kind of turn on their own party um, even with all the ugly threats and everything else that the, uh, the the democratic machine has thrown at them for for doing that so anyway uh, other people do it a lot better than I do so uh, I, I just you know it's so obvious that uh, I just don't like restating the obvious and uh, so I would suggest uh, you know checking out there are a lot of good political podcasts that will you know find the ones that will tell you the truth and and go there um, next thing is you know shot show everybody makes a big fuss over this thing you know frankly frankly I think the shot show is another place where where jerks hang out first of all even if I could fake enough of a <laughs> enough of a credential to get in as a podcaster, which I doubt I could, but um, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's not open to the public. It's only open up to the quote cool kids, quote unquote. And a lot of people show different different stuff. Um, it's all the future. It's all about hey, you know, this is coming out and it's going to be a big deal, and it's become its own kind of kind of event it's kind of very elitist there are a lot of believe it or not you know party shot show parties and uh, a few companies have bailed on the thing because of covid i think sig bailed on it i don't know if beretta bailed on it too but a lot of the smaller companies like going there because they show their products and and uh, a lot of those are just dreams you know never hit the market but they show it anyway um you know but i've never been that impressed with it because usually by the time something's revealed there it's gonna be a long time before you see it on the shelf and uh, you know I, I don't sit around waiting for something if I if I have a need I, I fill it I don't I don't wait for the promise of tomorrow um, you know it'll be you'll be waiting a long time if you do that so I'm not real impressed with the shot show I don't really like it I did go to an NRA, uh, you know, their annual meetings, long time ago, actually, about 15 years ago, and, uh, you know, that was actually pretty good. Um, it's the same kind of stuff. They, they probably have the same booths and everything else, and you walk through there, and you, of course, you have to be an NRA member, you know, in one of the degrees, anything from an annual to a, you know, patron to get in there. Um, and you can walk around and people are very friendly they, they talk about a lot of interesting stuff and it's 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 really it's really a lot of fun so I would say go to the NRA meetings and exhibits and show um, rather than worry about the shot show because that's a lot more elite and you know frankly if you're not in the club you probably aren't gonna go very much so that's a shot show uh next thing is hey a new computerized site for the army's squad automatic weapon in 6.8 what do i really think about computerized sites on a squad automatic weapon um you know i'm not sure i would think if it's got some night vision capability i i could probably get on board with it but you know the infantry squad and the infantry platoon is a tough place it is a tough environment whether it's army or marines or you know it's it's a tough place it's not it's not cool it's not uh um 
a place where a lot of high-end frail equipment is going to survive very, very often. Um, you know, when you're riding around in an APC all day for for weeks, uh, things things get banged pretty hard. And I mean, um, in in the time that I was was in the infantry, I mean, uh, you you hear it all the time. You hear here, hold this, clunk, whack, thunk. I mean, especially in mechanized. I, I was mechanized and light infantry. Light infantry is a little bit better. You don't get banged quite as hard. But, you know, when you're in a big mechanical monster, um, you know, I've seen M16s get crunched in ramp doors. I've seen all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, stuff just getting banged and hit. I wonder about some of this stuff. And I know they try to ruggedize it, but... Um, have the people who've ruggedized it, <laughs> do they really know the kind of abuse and beating it's going to take? And, that, and that's just in peacetime. I mean, in combat, it's a whole other thing where you're throwing yourself down on the ground where there's a lot of urgency and, and things bang and clump. You know that it's something that's going to get mounted on a weapon and stay there for a month. And, and then, of course, you know, the beauty of Iron Sights is that they are very difficult to lose their zero and so but as we all know optics can sometimes lots of things can happen the mounting screws and and brackets and and the internal mechanism and this that and the other thing can all go awry and when you're pulling the trigger the bullets are going somewhere other than where you intend them and where the reticle is pointing so uh, I think that they're I think that's going to be a real challenge. Um, I don't really know how successful in the past it was. I mean, you you can kind of look, you know, the Japanese were big on it in World War II, but that was a such nascent technology compared to now. Um, I don't know, but I, I would be willing to wager that they had some of the same problems. And, of course, the more complex it is and expensive it is, um, you know, the just frailty. It's it's what where is the durability and reliability on that? Um, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, frankly, I think it might be something that you know you don't keep mounted all the time. It's something that maybe you do for a mission, and then you really got to ask yourself: Is it worth? Is it really worth the wait? And does it does it have some sort of night? If it has night vision capability, I can I can I can be a little closer to it. But um, the way it stands right now, I'm, I will be interested to see how this plays out. Um, iron sights have a lot. There's a lot of goodness in iron sights. And uh, we'll see how that, how that rolls. Hey, another thing I ran across. And, you know, there's so many powders and components and things out there now that it's, it's, really, it's really becoming a challenge to try to keep up with that. And, and, and financially, as a, as a hand loader, I can't do it. I can't try all the new powders and all the new bullets and and all this stuff out there. It's it's not only is it expensive, but it's hard to get, hard to find, and do I really have a use for it? But one thing I found that I do have a use for is uh, it's called 6.5 Stayball Powder by Hodgden. It's actually Winchester, but Hodgden owns Winchester. And uh, here's the here's the deal with it. It's formulated to for optimal performance in 6.5 rifles. Uh, I think 6.5 Creedmoor probably was the uh, uh, 
uh, the biggest consumer, but also 6.5 Grendel. And I think there's six, another 6.5 out there. I can't remember that that's kind of semi-popular now. So uh, this is this is a ball powder, which in a lot of hand loaders will disagree with me, but I do not like stick powders, okay, because they don't meter very well um, because they're, they're like little pencil lead sticks and they get they don't really go well in powder measures and other things that I don't care for so I I like ball powder because it meters very very well and you get very consistent loads with it and so um, I use a lot of accurate 2520 I think that's a great powder for you know a variety of things this is a ball powder which means it's going to meter very well but the um, the other advantage, the other claim, the claim to fame is that it is um, not temperature sensitive, which means it's going to be very consistent, whether it's hot out or cold out or the ammunition's warm or the ammunition's cold. It's going to be very, very consistent. So I'm looking forward to trying it out. Um, why is that a good attribute for 6.5? Well, because 6.5 is used for a lot of precision shooting. And of course, the lower standard deviation in velocity you get um, you know the more consistent the loads are which is really all that saying um, you're gonna get better accuracy and also you won't get changes in point of impact uh, due to ambient temperature changes uh, very important for tactical or even you know just precision rifle use but tactical use that's gonna be that's gonna be important so um, yeah really kinda high on that can't wait to start it uh, probably won't start that though until uh, maybe later spring or summer because uh, I don't really need a bunch of 6.5 Creedmoor ammo. I'm, I'm not really consuming it uh, the way I thought I would and that, that'll come a little bit later. Uh, another thing I've seen is a couple, couple of YouTubers um, and, and this is going by. I, you remember I, I took the, the guy who was the uh, oh shoot it was the um, the guerrilla fighter gun book or whatever that this guy this guy wrote and and oh my god it was it was terrible absolutely terrible so i spent a whole podcast just ripping this thing up from the from the front page to the to the f bombs to you know the and then the equipment recommendations i i just tore this thing to shreds but um, there's a couple guys out there now and uh they they they're selling these books on on you know how to form your own armed protective unit meaning kind of you and your neighbors maybe getting together and saying hey you know the world we live in is not exactly the same uh, uh, it's not the cleavers living in Mayfield you know I mean it's this is not leave it to beaver anymore it's not Gilligan's Island where nobody's gonna come mess with us um, and I don't here's my viewpoint on that um, I would be very careful with that because you certainly don't want to appear to be any kind of a threatening or uh, you, you can't really use that kind of association as a deterrence like don't come into our neighborhood because our neighborhood watch will will kill you or our neighborhood protective unit will <laughs> it, it reeks of vigilantism it reeks of the Ahmed Aubrey thing it reeks of, of a few other things that just probably aren't where you want to be with that. But I don't think it's a bad idea. 
if you've got neighbors who you get along with and they have the same interests and they have the same you know uh, concerns you do uh, informally getting together and being very informal and not adopting <laughs> yeah, don't adopt uniforms and patches uh, if you kind of keep it low-key but but understand that hey if things get bad we're gonna rely on each other and we're gonna band together that's not a bad idea that's not a bad idea at all um, the value of these books I don't know I tend to be very skeptical about people who have who write books and can you learn from books I, I think if you're going to have an association like that um, you should be very very judicious and see who's got some experience police and military experience and kind of build something from there I, I don't know that uh, that these comic booky guides are gonna gonna particularly help but they they can't really hurt either um, anyway so and there's been a lot of stuff like this in the survivalist world written over the years so certainly you can also um, dig back into that for for some of the stuff even going back to the what is the now laughable Mel Tappan's survival guns which you know I, I I have a copy of that I've had since I was a kid and I, I even break it out every now and then and read it just for nostalgia but things have changed they've changed quite a bit oh another uh, thing that has cropped up is in speaking with our friend of the podcast he reminded me and I think he actually owns one you know we were talking about how conversions or caliber conversions for firearms can be a very tricky tricky deal um, most of the ones I've run across are not that great they're just not that great but um, he reminded me of one that is actually quite excellent which is the Argentine Navy had a large quantity of seven millimeter Mauser SAFN 49s you know FN 49s kind of the last great semi-automatic battle rifle you know the kind of traditional battle rifle you know it was it was later replaced by the FN the wonderful FNFAL and the G3 and of course the M14 came in and you know it, it, it receded into the background but it was kind of that immediate post-World War II you know battle rifle and seven millimeter mauser a wonderful cartridge absolutely wonderful cartridge so it's um you know they had a, a quantity of these things and of course they were moving to 762 nato so what they did was they converted a bunch of these rifles probably after they had adopted the fnfal for their ground troops you know the naval service a lot of times will get some hand-me-down rifles because they don't really use them very much so it's kind of a good place um you know there were official u.s government 762 nato conversions of m1 rifles because hey you know the ammunition is around and we don't have enough m14s to give them to keep on board ship because they they hardly ever use them so a 762 nato garand made made sense it just made sense um so anyway they had these rifles and they converted them to 7.62 NATO and uh, a detachable magazine and they worked quite well and if you're very very lucky you can find one in the United States and uh, they're beautiful rifles really really wonderful um, 
Yeah, so that is a conversion that actually worked out quite well. Uh, other conversions that have worked out, you know, after World War One, some of those straight pull Mannlicher rifles, I think, were adopted for for different cartridges. Um, yeah, that's a. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I got a question about another conversion a little later, so I'll save that one. But yes, SAFN forty nine converted to 762 NATO by the Argentine Navy. Wonder if any of those were used in the Falklands Malvinas War. Uh, be interesting to know. Very interesting to know. Uh, Argentina, you know, they have great guns. They, For a country that, that you don't think of immediately when you think of arms and and things, I mean, they they've had outstanding guns. They've used they used the Browning High Power. They used, you know, the nineteenth, um, the Systemical, a nineteen eleven A one. Of course, the FAL. Of course, the uh, they actually used the better FAL, the one in the uh, inch pattern. Um, you know, the SAFN, and, and I'm sure there's others. I, did I mention Browning High Power? Maybe not. Um, they've used a lot of great great weapons over over time so they 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 have and they produce some too they produce them so they have a really good instinct and really are able to execute the arms industry uh, really pretty well pretty well so uh, they 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 are to be you know when when somebody comes up and says hey I've got an Argentine weapon I look at it I have two Model 1891s. Now, of course, they're they're made in Germany, but you know it shows how how uh, smart the Argentines were. Because I will tell you that 7.65 Argentine was the <laughs> it was the the 7.62 NATO of its day. I mean, it 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 is a great cartridge, and uh, the rifles are really cool. And I one of the ones I have is a Peruvian one that's got the uh, long vizier sight. Which you know the big roller coaster site, kind of silly looking, but very kind of antique, cool looking. So I I really like that. But it's a great great gun, great rifle. Um, I think that uh, it it really deserved a better fate than it had. I I like it better than the 98. To be honest with you, um, it's a push action, not control feed, uh, lighter recoil. It's it's a it's definitely a winner. Definitely a winner. Okay, that's enough of on that. Um, I wanted to talk about a few lessons from the land. We bought some land, okay, and my wife likes to call it a farm. I can't, I can't stomach the term farm because I grew up on a ranch and I consider myself more of a rancher. I don't know how to grow things. I'm not a sodbuster, so, so I just call it the land. That way, I don't call it the ranch and and uh, create create a, a problem about it. But anyway. Uh, the lesson from the land is, you know, as a military rifle and pistol guy, um, I do, and, and I've talked about this before kind of obliquely, but, you know, um, when it comes to the guns I like to carry around and have and shoot there, um, the kind of simpler guns are are real winners. I mean, they're real winners. Um, you know, 22 rifles and pistols have kind of come back because you know pest control and 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 a few other things plus they're they're fun to shoot they're lightweight 
and they're useful they're very useful uh, lever action guns very useful uh, revolvers of all types I like 45 auto rim and I've told you about my my uh, refinished you know it has no collector value but my uh, it, I love it because it has this Indiana Jones look about it but the uh, 1917 you know ex-Brazilian Navy gun shooting 45 auto rim it's, it's perfect I like it and I like them better than the semi-autos because I'm not chasing brass all over the place um, I took out a couple of trash pandas with uh, you know raccoons with a 3840 saddle gun um, made in 1910 of all things great utility and guns you know I sometimes I really don't want to splash something like a raccoon with with a uh, 556 I mean it's just I don't really want a, a big mess on my hands so so uh, that's that's kind of it so I guess the lessons from the land are uh, lever guns are, are great cast bullets are great in all the guns and especially um, if you powder coat them, uh, they're they're very good. There have been a few a few things I've talked about, and I'll do an update on powder coating because that's one of the questions later. But um, you know, it's it's you don't need this optimal performance. In fact, the only time I ever shoot my 6.5 Creedmoor out on the land is just when I I'm shooting from one end to the other, um, you know, just because I want to do that. It it doesn't really serve uh, a tremendous purpose there but um, you know maybe if I was coyote hunting or something else that would be different but uh, right now kind of the simpler you know kind of guns that go back a hundred years are uh, they're really excellent and uh, they really fit the bill so the other thing from the land is hey holsters you know we forget when you do a lot of range shooting you go out to your club and and you take the gun out of your case and you shoot it and put it back in your case you tend to forget about holsters scabbards and and that kind of stuff and unfortunately that is not cheap these days these are these are, are definitely not cheap and so uh, I would be very very um, remiss if I didn't if I didn't tell you the great leather is well worth the price and but you got to be judicious because boy you can run up as much in leather as you have in the gun if you're not careful and what I have found is that the the good belt holster you know just the outside the pants belt holster is a great holster you know it's a great holster to have I'm not worried about concealment so I'm just I'm just wearing it and uh, up for my for the 45 auto rim I've you know and now this is a part where it didn't cost much I got one of the repro I, I had already one of the reproduction um, World War one 1917 holsters it's not an original holster it's it's a repo um, you know it's 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 a great holster though the design and everything is really well and I I wear about a two inch belt so I just slip that slip that on my belt and I just I go wandering around and it's a very good gun because it's not that heavy and uh, you know I really like it um, so those are lessons from the land I've, I've talked about them before but I kind of consolidate them a little bit here I guess the last thing is um, I'm not using optics the, as much as I thought I would that the iron sights 
uh, with the closer closer ranges that I'm, I'm actually shooting at things the iron sights are actually working out really well so um, I don't feel a real need or I don't feel that there's any kind of a problem uh, not having a, uh, a scope for a long time I was the the gun I thought would be awesome up there was a uh, actually a retro AR and it's still good and it's excellent but I just don't really even need the uh, three power of the scope there and uh, so I find the leather guns are a lot more portable so that is the end of that okay now that we're done with lessons from the land uh, why don't we go into my favorite part of the podcast which is Q and A questions and answers okay the first one is what do you know and do you like bullpup rifles and uh, I, I say I have very limited experience with bullpup rifles um, I've avoided them scrupulously over the years my only experience with them has been with the uh, British uh, L85A1 whatever that whatever that thing is that they use and, and frankly it's they're very portable my impressions are they're very portable um, they're very actually reasonably well balanced um, handy would be the word I would use they're very handy they're they're very fast handling uh, what I don't like about them is I don't like the action next to my face I don't like the fact that uh, I think you need three hands to clear a malfunction if you have a malfunction it's it's not nearly as easy as it is with a standard design rifle that's and, and part of that is training part of that's being used to it I suppose but yeah it just everything is back uh, next to your body it's not out front where your hands can get at it easy so and no no amount of training or physics or anything is going to change the fact that that uh, my arms go where my arms go and my arms find it easier to, to manipulate things you know kind of out front so uh, I don't think I don't really think that bullpup rifles have anything more than kind of a niche and I think countries like Britain has flirted with them they flirted with them in the early 50s and I think they've now gotten their uh, their fill I would be very surprised if they adopt another bullpup rifle just that's what I would think so bullpup rifles uh, you know as an individual operator I don't like them I don't care for them at all okay have you ever seen an 8mm Mauser Carcano rifle uh, I've seen one I've never shot one and I know that these things were kind of made by the I, I guess they somehow wound up with a whole bunch of these things and they rechambered them the eight millimeter Mauser and we're going to give them to their home guard or last ditch defense or whatever whatever it was in World War II so they're around they're not in the Carcano population they're a comparatively small part of it what the numbers were I don't know but you see them occasionally but they're you know they're not it's not something you run across every day so uh, I would say that they're they're comparatively scarce and uh, a lot of people say they're okay I personally would be I, I just don't again we go back to that conversion thing of 
hey, now you've chambered a rifle for a cartridge that is a lot more powerful than the original one. So what durability and reliability and safety issues does that engender? And uh, I, I would say that I would uh, <laughs> probably, I probably would steer clear of the 8mm Carcano. But I have seen them. They're very interesting collectible. And, uh, you know, I would... Uh, I, I find them I find them fascinating and compelling, but it's not something that I would uh, procure and think that I'm going to shoot um, very often at all. Uh, the other here's something on the same vein: uh, the 303 Martini Enfield. What do you know of these, and are they better than the large caliber Martinis? Uh, the 303 was it was a um, it was an adapt an adaptation of the 450 of the 577 450 martini henry uh they they were when they went to the in the late 1880s when they went to the 303 british they had scads of rifles around and i think they they converted some to this because the martini being a very strong action could withstand the uh increased pressure and and uh, the difference uh, with the, um, you know, the, the loads they had. So, um, you know, definitely, you know, the cordite loads were different than the black powder loads. And so, anyway, uh, they, they converted a bunch of those, and mostly I don't think the British used them. I think they gave them out to their colonial, you know, their colonial friends, and uh, that's where they come from. I think there are a lot of forgeries on the market. Forgeries meaning... Uh, ones that have been brought back from places like Afghanistan, which might be Kyber Pass rifles, which um, you know is is something that uh, you might have to be wary of because their metallurgy was is definitely uh, suspect. There was an importer who brought in a bunch, not a bunch, but a few anyway, um, and I think they were trying to peddle those as authentic, and they weren't. And some of the real, you know, expert collectors pointed out the difference. So I don't know what the origin of those rifles or what the uh, disposition of them was. And I can't even remember exactly who brought them in. And I don't really want to. I don't really want to speculate because I'll, I'll probably pick the wrong one. Uh, another question. Yeah, there's these another military rifle question. Um, what do you know about trapdoor rifles? And are they suitable for shooting today? And the answer is it's probably the most user-friendly black powder cartridge rifle you can get is a trapdoor Springfield. The, the Model 1873 through 1888 Springfield rifles. And they come in, yeah, they, got, they have different kind of sights on them. Uh, as they go through the the later ones have what's called a buffington sight which is a fully adjustable rear sight which is kind of cool uh there's also one that had a uh, a ramrod bayonet which was a silly idea but they did it anyway so um and there were cadet rifles and there were carbines and to me i i'm fascinated always by the cadet rifles they kind of made those for west point and other military institutions that had kind of younger men in it who who might not be full fully grown and so they wanted a a slightly smaller rifle shorter rifle but in the same proportions 
so they could you know do close close order drill and and do the other things with rifles they needed to do but it was just downsized a little bit so i really like those uh, the carbines were of course for the cavalry uh, the nice thing about trapdoor rifles is the trapdoor action was very strong um, modern brass works very very well in it uh, modern bullets uh, four five nine bullets usually will work pretty well in it um, again like any 19th century rifle you know they, they produce umpteen thousand of them they might have some different bore diameters you know you might want to slug it but um, it's one of those ones I'll tell you straight up it's one of those ones if you have a trapdoor rifle and the bore is good and a lot of them are a lot of them have very nice bores you would think they would all be trashed but they're not uh, a lot of them have nice bores um, you can you can pretty much go with a 459 bullet and be successful the chance that you'll be successful is very very high uh, you might have one of the ones that's slightly larger and in which case hey you know that's that just breaks but uh, they, they, you know the standard manu manufacturer of those rifles was very 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 good compared to some others and um, a 459 bullet almost always works the amazing part of it is and again this was only at 25 and 50 yards but I was firing one over Christmas um, the 405 grain Lee bullet is a great bullet and you pop that on some black powder you know or, or black powder substitute and wow when it hits a steel target and it, I had one of those it's a 3 8 inch AR 500 kind of a IPSC silhouette I guess and uh, holy cow did it make that thing jump and that's again 25 yards is close and 50 yards is close but the the difference was just you know it's really an impressive show the way that thing can can bang and and the kinetic energy to move that steel and you're probably looking at a load that's probably 1200 feet per second really the same as a lot of pistol loads but you're also talking a 405 grain bullet which is you know a, a significant chunk of of lead moving so it's it's got the energy so it's uh trapdoor rifles are great they're great history you can still shoot them you can still find them you know the the prices on those have not gone psycho crazy yet um you can find a trapdoor for a thousand bucks i mean like like everything else you know 20 years ago you could find them for a lot less now you find them for you know about a thousand bucks but they they are um they're really good rifles and uh there's still some parts out there for them so that's that's also kind of nice too they're simple um and they're uh, they're just great history they're great rifles and they're in a great caliber you can always find brass you can always find or cast your own bullets and uh you know you do very well you do very well with it um I recommend that that's, you know, if you want to get into military rifle shooting and shoot black powder cartridge, that's just a winner. Even though it's the kind of the passe 4570, and you know, it's not it's not that it's not that unique or, or uh, exotic, but you're trading uniqueness and exotic for availability, proven performance, and a lot of people have been shooting black powder cartridge 4570 so there's a lot of knowledge out there on the internet and in books 
on, on how to make them perform, how to make them shoot well. So uh, you can take advantage of all of that where, you know, you're, maybe your 11 millimeter Dutch Beaumont is, it, it doesn't have that, doesn't have that uh, um, body of knowledge and experience behind it because uh, they're pretty rare and nobody, nobody shoots them. One of the ones I would like to get interested in is, I, I like 43 Spanish. I don't know why. Yeah, I find it fascinating. But when you look at 4570 and 43 Spanish, the problems are immense. I mean, number one, finding a 439 bullet is going to be impossible. And finding a 439 bullet mold is going to be difficult and probably expensive. So there you go. The, the $29 Lee mold can turn into a $150 mold for you know 43 Spanish so that's it right there I've gone into Cabela's and have found you know um, 4570 unprimed brass sitting in a bag you're not going to find 43 43 Spanish you're not as a matter of fact you're gonna buy it from track of the wolf or somebody else and you're gonna pay three to five dollars a round for unprimed 43 Spanish brass there are some there are some cart people who who swear you can make it out of something else but man it becomes this nightmare of is the rim thick enough and is it long enough and all, all this other stuff it, that's that's all nightmare now if you want to get into that it's okay but you could but you just have to know up front that everything that's easy with a 4570 is going to be difficult with 43 spanish difficult harder and everything else um so that's the beauty of the of the uh, 43 not 43 spanish but the 4570 because the 43 spanish is the problem 4570 is problem free so that's that's my deal with trapdoor rifles and some of the other black powder uh, cartridge rifles out there um there may be fun but 4570 is definitely a way to go. Okay, do you know about the TSIS M1911A1 in 9mm? And if so, what do you think of it? Well, I like, as anyone knows who's listened to this podcast, even, even maybe just one episode, I love 1911A1s. I think they're great pistols and all that. I, I don't know that I would be crazy about one in 9mm. Um... A full-size gun in 9mm, I, I, I'll tell you what the advantages would be and what I think the disadvantages will be. The advantage is it's going to shoot very, very well. Um, it's also going to have very light recoil and be a very pleasant gun to shoot. The So it's, it's, it's well worth it from that. If you're... I would actually even go far enough to say if you're kind of a reenactor and you're you're firing blanks, maybe maybe there's a way to go. I don't know. Um, so that's that's it because it looks like a World War II 1911 A1. It really does. Except those were in 45 caliber, and that's the the downside of it is it's not a 45. It does not have any extra capacity being a nine millimeter. I think it might have it might have nine shot magazines, so you might you know you can cheat and get ten in one in the spout you'll get 10 but that's uh, pretty low capacity these days and you have a gun that when people look at it they expect it to be in 45 and if it's in nine millimeter they'll say oh 
<laughs> is that right? <laughs> wow. You know, it, it's uh, it's not going to be a very. Uh, it's just it. You know, it's something that just two two things that are actually pretty good, but they just don't kind of fit together very well. Now, if it were a commander with high vis, you know, kind of like nice sights on it or something, uh, then you could say, yeah, you know, this is this is kind of cool as a carry gun or something. It's a little bit smaller and all that. One of my favorite guns is a Star BM, which is a, basically a a Spanish version of a 1911, certainly 1911 influenced and stylized gun. And it's a 9mm, but it's actually just a little bit smaller than a Commander. So um, it's it's a very nice gun and, and a very cool gun and a very pleasant gun to shoot. So I assume the thesis would be the same thing. Okay, Ooh, any updates on powder coating? Yes, I do have updates. Uh, it's worked very, very well as for higher velocity loads um, in 3030. I, I tested some last weekend and it really worked out well. Um, the only the only failure I've had with it, and I've said it on the podcast before, was I did some 310 grain 44 caliber bullets and uh, I had neck tension and, and uh, problems with those. Even when putting a heavy roll crimp on, they... Um, they were actually too, too well lubricated. The powder coating worked too well as a lubrication, and I couldn't get any friction in between the case and the bullet. So um, that was a real problem, and uh, I wound up, I wound up basically just scrapping that because those bullets weren't going to move that fast anyway. Even out of a 44 Magnum, they, those things uh, around a thousand feet per second at the at the very most. And I'll probably shoot them less than that, at a lesser velocity than that. So, not going to powder coat those anymore. Not going to powder coat uh, anything for 45 ACP. It's just not worth it. Um, again, that that friction between the lead and the brass is is a good thing, and you you got to make sure that uh, you don't upset that. Uh, I will use it. I I found that they were great in 30 Mauser. They worked really good in 30 Mauser. Worked really good in 38 Smith & Wesson. Not the 38 Special, but 38 Smith & Wesson. I used a, uh, a Lee mold for 200 grain bullet. Uh, that thing dropped at about 358. I powder coated it. It came out at 361, which is notionally the bore diameter of a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver. And it tightened up even in, even in a Webley that had never given me decent accuracy. It gave me better accuracy. And it shot well in a uh, uh, police positive in 38 uh, Smith and Wesson, and a uh, Smith and Wesson um, victory model in 38 Smith and Wesson. So, yeah. So, the, so powder coating is powder coating works out. I can't wait to try it in nine millimeter. Well, I can wait. I will wait to try it in nine millimeter. But uh, yeah, I'm going to try it in nine millimeter because uh, I like the fact. That things don't lead, and so um, that will definitely be a very, very welcome um, thing. Because lead bullets in nine millimeter can create some leading problems. So uh, I'm really looking forward to doing to doing that and uh, uh, going from there. Uh, next thing is, what do you think of the current trends in precision and tactical rifles? Well, it's so big, I, I can't get my mind around it. Uh, everybody is turning out these chassis rifles, and, and I'm sure they're very good. Uh, they're expensive, so they better be good. Uh, everybody's churning them out. 
Um, I think there's a lot of... I don't know how to say this. Um, I don't know exactly if there's the precision rifle series you know the prs rifles and those have to have certain things like a detachable magazine they have to be relatively lightweight um they have to have kind of a shorter barrel they have to be handy because they're they do some very challenging things with those so and they shoot at long distance but they they also you know shooting around some of those some of those barricades and off of rooftops and and under cars and and doing all this other kind of stuff so the the, the gun has to be a little bit handy uh then there's the long range just people who shoot long range and they don't really care um they just you know they plop down with the gun and fire and it doesn't and it fires off a bipod or a rest and there they go uh, I'm kind of more like that. My 6.5 Creedmoor is not a, you know, something I'd want to carry around all day. And it's got a 26-inch barrel, so, you know, it's not it's it's not real handy. <laughs> so, so there you go. And then there are the guys who who hunt, and they're using these to make long-range shots on game, or they think they're going to, and. Uh, you know, so those three, the guns kind of look similarly, but there's some important differences depending on what actual use you have for it. So again, it's much, much more desirable to know exactly what you need the gun to do and then go find the ones that fit that envelope uh, within the within the kind of the uh, size and weight parameters that you've established. And that is not a simple task given that is not a simple task at all because the uh, the other side of the coin is these rifles are just rifles until you put the optic on them. Um, a lot of times the optic is going to not only define your use and, and also kind of narrow the use of that of that uh, rifle but it's it's just a it's just that's the user interface your eye looks through the scope your eye doesn't look down the bore you know your finger touches the trigger and your eye looks through the scope and you know if you don't have the right the right hardware there you're not going to get the result you need or you're not going to be able to get it to where you need it to go um, so I, I think that it's it's a it's an exciting very exciting place to be having all these wonderful choices but they cost a lot of money and you can wind up going down the wrong road pretty quick just from what I've seen uh, so anyway that's uh, that's it and more will come to that uh, there's there's some other things I, I need to access a few other people more will come on that on that question as to hey what were you looking for what did you what were you looking for what did you actually get what was your budget and were you able to make those things all work all work together and get the right get the right result so we'll see oh well that's it 
for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And again, you can leave any questions or comments on Podbean, which is our primary carrier, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. And I will be happy to answer those things for you. Uh, But until then, this is Old School Guns, out.